Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Hi. Hey, how are you? Hey, Donna, how are you? I'm well, how are you? We are really, really well. We're, we're emerging from our lockdown in a few weeks, so we're happy again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's very good. I'm very yeah. happy. To hear How are things with you? And where are you based, Donna? Well, I'm in New Orleans um, and uh, things are good. We just got our garbage picked up today for like the first time since the storm a few weeks ago. Oh. So that's a plus. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Other than that, um, you know, we're good. Yeah. How was this? How will you guys get battered with a few storms from time? Seems like an area that these sort of things tend to happen um, every sort of few years. How do you, how do you sort of cope with that? It must be quite traumatizing and, and scary for your family. And, you know, mother nature is a, is a scary thing. And mother nature is a terrifying beast. And um, I, my husband is an emergency medicine physician. Right. So he's like super calm under pressure. Um, I, on the other hand, um, am not. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and so they don't even realize it. But I mean, it's it's really disruptive. I mean, like last year, I was two weeks away from giving birth, and there was um, a double hurricane coming, and so um, we had to evacuate twice last year. So yeah, it's just it's disruptive. Um, It's it's scary. It's all of those things. So before we maybe get into the book. We'd love to hear all about all about you. Obviously, Jake and I have, have extensively researched you about your background and the amazing, well, wonderful things that, that you're doing over in um, New Orleans. And and um, so just to, to orientate the listeners, just tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you ended up here and writing this book. Sure. So I, um, well, it's, it's quite a bit of a story. Um, so I, I live in New Orleans. I'm uh, an associate professor of sociology and uh, women's gender and sexuality studies at Louisiana State University. The book was published in 2017 um, by NYU Press. And I, I started researching and writing the book probably um, about 10 years before that. It took me a while to... Uh, to figure out exactly what I was going to do to collect all the materials, to interview the people and whatnot. But it was almost like a decade long process. Um, And the reason why I started working on the book was because I grew up in Miami. Oh, yes. Uh, Right. And so I was no stranger to uh, cosmetic surgery. You know, I grew up in a world where, you know, I'm Jewish. So, uh, you know, 13 year olds got no job. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of figured. Um, (laughs) So I grew up in a, a, you know, in a little neighborhood uh, where girls got nose jobs and and boys got nose jobs before their bar mitzvahs and breast implants happened a bit later, usually um, right after high school, before college. So I was nosed and my mom is probably going to listen to this, but when I was, you know, 
just beginning grad school, she had had a facelift and some other work done. Um, and so uh, my, my grandparents have had facelifts. I mean, like I am no stranger to, to cosmetic surgery. Um, I just sort of thought it was something you did to transform yourself. Um, and when I was in my late twenties and I was in graduate school and a, a good friend of mine in Miami told me she had gotten Botox. Um, I was really flabbergasted because I just sort of thought it was something that older women did. Um, it just wasn't something that was even on my radar. And, uh, and so that's sort of the inception for the project. And then she said to me, oh, well, you know, you should do it too, because if you start now, you're going to, um, uh, to not allow those deeper creases from forming in your forehead. Right. That was the first time I ever heard this, you know, now infamous gospel of prevention. <laughs> yes. Um, I just wanted to just take a little bit of a, of a step back and just a little bit more about um, your background and what it is that you're involved in, in terms of teaching, because I think that, you know, when, yeah. you, when you sort of talk about the terms like gender studies and, and bodies and women's sexuality, I think people have a general idea, but I don't think they truly understand what it is that you do. So we are going to talk like tons about the book, but I just want to get a little bit more background on you just so we can get an understanding of where you're coming from and what it is that you do. Sorry, just wanted to. No, no, no. And, and actually, and and thank you for asking that. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, what it is I do. So I'm a sociologist um, by training. My doctorate is in sociology, which means I um, look at um, the intersection of uh, so this social structural processes and individual um, experiences. Um, and so, so I'm, I'm a sociologist, but my um, area of expertise is gender, particularly um, looking at gender inequality and the ways by which men, women, and, you know, now um, trans and non-binary folks um, both reaffirm and uh, transgress uh, the gender system. And so, um, I teach cl like classes in, I teach a class in gender and bodies. So looking at just like the body politics and the ways by which we, um, we cultivate our bodies, how that is, is very gendered. Right. And also like racialized and class and all of those other things. Um, and so, uh, does that help at all? Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. curious to know, um, I don't know how to ask this because it's a it's an area that I don't fully understand. But how much of your own life experience colors your teaching? I guess. Oh, oh, yeah. Um. So, as a feminist sociologist, I'm a firm believer and advocate of starting where you are, right, and using your own experiences to inform your um, pedagogy and your scholarship. So, a ton. I have an essay that I wrote called "My Women's Studies Professor Uses Botox?" Question <laughs> mark. And so, and so I use my classes to talk about the kinds of body work that they do, right? Like they, to them, Botox, maybe not now, but to them, you know, a few years ago, Botox was like completely foreign and something older women did. Um, but uh, but it, it is useful to talk about other kinds of body work, like shaving and wearing makeup and dyeing her hair and whatnot. So, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. And you're not a medical doctor, you're a doctor of sociology. Oh, no, no, I'm no. My, my husband reminds me of that every day. I'm <laughs> a medical doctor. <laughs> I have a PhD. <laughs> fair enough. What was the motivation for writing the book? Was it, you know, observations that you're having from, you know, you said from your childhood and, and watching members of your family sort of be quite pro 
um, cosmetic intervention. I'm assuming that in your line of work, meeting people who are going through different stages of, of their life and looking at the social presses of, of wanting to look a certain way and present themselves in a certain way. So just, yeah, what, what was the motivation there? Yeah, so um, so the motivation came pretty early on. I was a graduate student and I was living in like a very small kind of podunk college town. And I returned to Miami where I grew up for the holidays. And I, I you know, I was 27. All of my other friends were like living in New York and Los Angeles and Miami and they had money. Um, and uh, And one of them said to me that she had gotten Botox. And this was in like 2002 or three. So this was really, really early. Right. And so, and she was, you know, not even in 30 yet. And I was really just like curious. I was first, I was flabbergasted. And then I was curious about this whole rhetoric of prevention, right? This is the first time I heard it. And I was like, well, am I, am I doing something wrong? Right. And so there was that feeling, um, am I not keeping up with the Joneses? Right. And am I ever going to be able to keep up with the Joneses? Cause I'm going to be in graduate school forever. Um, and then, um, and then as well, it was really just, I, it became more and more and more prevalent, but, you know, very, very gradually. Right. Um, and, um, and I was just, no one else was talking about it. <laughs> um, and so I was just, you know, I had a curiosity and I wanted to pursue it. And that's really the inception of the book and the project. And what year was that? So this it, this incident happened probably in about 2002, through somewhere between 2002 and 2004. And then I, I was writing my dissertation on gay fathers. So I was like totally different area of research. Huh. And then um, I finished publishing out of that probably in 2010 or 11. Okay, because right. it, it gives some insight into, right. you know, I guess, what was available, mm-hmm. how the product was maybe marketed back then. Uh, it was quite new for everyone. I, as my understanding that it was FDA approved in 2002 in the States for yeah, cosmetic purposes. Yeah, mm-hmm. but we actually had Gene Carruthers on who who discovered uh, oh you know, wow! Yeah, <laughs> discovered using cosmetic Botox uh-huh. for you know particular indications. So, you know that was back in the oh, what did she say? I think she said the late eighties. I think it was yeah, a long time. So ago. It, you know it went through a number of inceptions and trials before it got to two thousand and two. Mm-hmm. So it's just useful to get you know your background of why you wrote the book then, because I'm curious to know whether it's changed now with twenty twenty one. So much. It was still, it was still like, you know, my friend pulled me aside and told me a, a secret, right? That doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> um, I, I would say for the most part, people are sort of loud and proud about their Botox use, yeah. right? But they're loud and proud about using it, but you never want to look it, right? You never want to look Botoxed. Um, you just want to look... Yeah, and everyone wants to um, say, oh, they've only had a little bit done. I've only just had a touch. Yeah, maybe I, don't, right. I, don't, I, don't, I don't get too much done. Inter- interesting, you talk about the the um, perceptions of um, how people sort of viewed getting these treatments done. And I remember um, my first clinic, um, or one of my first clinics was down in Canberra, which is our nation's capital, which um quite conservative compared to some of the other states in terms of um, people were a lot more concerned about people knowing they had treatments done. So it was almost like there was a drug deal happening. Every time someone was coming in, they're using code words and, you know, they're tapping their nose and there's cash sort of going under. It's like in brown paper bags. You're like, 
are the federal agents going to turn up soon? I don't know what's going on here. But it was just watching that change from people being so, so secretive and hiding it from their partners, hiding it from their friends, you know, wearing dark glasses when they come into the clinic so no one can pick out who they are, especially in Canberra because it's quite a, a small city compared to the rest of Australia, which is still small compared to the States. Um, I think now it has about 500,000 people total there. So we're going back, you know, 10 years when it was, you know, a lot less. But yeah, interesting that you say how that, I've not definitely noticed that, um, particularly in, in, that, in that clinic from looking back from 10 years ago. Well, I'm curious, actually, like you mentioned, uh, Dana, you know, this isn't just about injectables. This is about looking good, I guess, really the conversation. Why are people so comfortable by, you know, getting their hair done or their nails done and grooming and, and wearing beautiful dresses? And obviously that comes with expense. Where, whereas if it comes to an injectable, there is this huge taboo. So what, what, what have you found in your own research and your experiences and talking to people? So beauty is supposed to be effortless, right? We're not really like, like the whole ideal of like a natural beauty and the whole seduction of a natural beauty is you're not supposed to look like you're trying that hard, right? And so that's why people who have like too much work done, right? Like that's, that's the no-no, okay? Um, and so I think that's part of it. And I think that Botox started out really stigmatized because, you know, the beginnings of Botox, it was like these very frozen faces, right, that didn't move. Um, you know, I think that injectables have come a long way since then. But I think that um, it wasn't just getting work done that was stigmatized. It was this specific type of work, like, oh, you're going to freeze your face and you're going to look like a freak mm -hmm. kind of thing, right? So I think that's part of it. It's interesting because I, I agree, you know, that when, when Botox and neurotoxins were first used, the goal was just to obliterate everything because, you know, no wrinkles equals young, right? But right. we clearly no know. No wrinkles actually looks old. Right? Yeah, it looks strange. Yeah. yeah, it looks strange and it looks old and it looks garish, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, and I think us injectors have definitely learned that. But it's interesting, you know, let's, let's just stick to sort of neurotoxins. It you know, once you've had your consult, it's a very quick, easy transaction with minimal fuss. Whereas women can spend four hours getting their hair done. <laughs> and, and, you know, that does not seem effortless or easy. So it's, it's interesting that people will still use the, the taboo of an injection as being, ah, oh, that's, that's maybe a little bit too far for me, but I'm quite happy to do everything else. Right. Well, you know, there's also this notion that you're going to a hair salon and you're getting pampered and primped and it's this like community of women there and they're, they're you know, sharing stories. Um, neurotoxins, and my apologies for not remembering to use neurotoxins um, instead of the brand name, um, you know, neurotoxins, filler, you're going in and it hurts. It doesn't feel good. You're going in and you're getting shot in your face. Um, and oftentimes, you know, you're bruised afterward for a little bit. You're a little bit swollen, right? So it's not, it's not this like, oh, feel good kind of thing, like getting your nails and getting your hair done is, right? I mean, it's a different kind of transaction. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, it's certainly medical. Like, I think that's what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. I mean, what's, they don't want to talk about it as medical, right? We have all medical spas and dentist office and whatnot. It's medical. <laughs> yeah. I, I sort of see where you're coming from. Um, I mean, what's the worst that can happen with a bad haircut? Um, well, you get a bad color or it grows out. You know, if you have a bad 
treatment, you could have an occlusion or go blind or something, not with, with toxin, obviously, but I mean, the, the consequences of it going wrong are a, a lot more, but it's been interesting. You know, there had definitely has been a move, I think, and, um, you know, Dana, maybe tell us in your experiences, there definitely has been a move to try and make these treatments feel less serious in some ways, in certain respects, like putting them in clinics where they feel more beauty, they feel more <clears throat> and less medical. And that's probably a good thing for getting clients to feel more relaxed and comfortable about it or patients rather. But in some ways, and yeah, Jay comment as well, um, there has probably been um, an attempt to make these treatments feel less serious and therefore patients sometimes don't really um, remember or appreciate that this still is a medical procedure and things still need to, can go wrong and you still need to make sure that you're listening and understanding, you know, all the potential complications and, and side effects. What do, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I'll answer first as the injector. Sure. I mean, you're totally right. I mean, we want people to feel comfortable and happy and have a positive experience and, and look good. But at the same time, we're still trying to toe the line of, you know, you've got a consent form and we've got to go through all the scary complications. And if people don't realize that and there is a complication, we get, you know, major problems. So yeah, that, that, that is the the line that we toe as doctors and injectors. But, um, you, you know, you've been a patient, Dana. What's your experience? So, um, so not just my own experience, but I can also speak to the people I interviewed for the book, right? Um, and um, the fact that neurotoxins and dermal fillers and all of these other minimally invasive procedures, right, are more and more often taken out of the clinical setting, right? You don't just go to a doctor's office anymore. I don't know what it's like in Sydney, but I can tell you that in um, good old America, we have medical spas everywhere. Um, and that was also something that changed dramatically when I was writing the book. Um, you know, medical spas were in ritzier areas. And then, you know, now a decade later, I mean, they are in every little suburban town in America. Mm. Um, and so, and, you know, and it, they are, they're happening, you know, with massages and manicures and pedicures. Right. And so I think that because of that, people, and, and I think that that is a move to try to make people more comfortable um, and not view these as um, these medical procedures, right? And so in a way that is like supplier induced demand, but on the other end, people forget that these are, you know, medical procedures and things can go wrong, not usually with neurotoxins, right? Like the worst that can go wrong is... The fear, <laughs> the fear that most people talked about in my book, the worst thing that could go wrong was looking bad. It wasn't, you know, um, it wasn't any medical side effect. People were more concerned about looking bad. Um, but um, for the most part, right, not much can go wrong. But with, you know, laser and filler, they're a little bit more risky, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, David works in a in a chain of clinics that are very available. And, and my applause of that is it's made it, for everyone rather than like you said just the ritzy parts of town so from that perspective it's it's leveled the playing ground and it's made it uh, more equal and you know whether you're rich or poor you can get something yeah. so from that perspective I, I think it's a really good thing but you know like you said you want the provider or the injector to be qualified and do everything the right way and if they're skipping steps then that's that's right. the yeah. problem so yeah I kind of want to speak to that really quickly sorry to interrupt you David but I'm not fine go for it when you say like rich or poor can, can get anything, there's a difference, right? I mean, you get what you pay for. 
Um, and so everybody is being inundated with these same messages, right? That like you should do these things to combat aging. You should do these things to look beautiful. Um, but not everybody has the same amount of, um, you know, uh, financial wherewithal to, to go to um, an experienced injector, right? Um, and so I think that that, in addition to thinking about both, so I'm a sociologist, right? So I'm thinking about how Botox is um, can be used as a lens through which to view inequality. So I'm not just looking at gender inequality and looking at how it's a feminized practice, but I'm also really interested in looking at class inequality and how our bodies become marked with like the symbols, right, of, of the representations of our social class. And so this is where the you know having too much work done or looking Botox, right, that comes in. Yeah. So if you have too much work done, it, it sort of gives the appearance that you're from, you know, a more aff, you know affluent background. Interesting. I wanted to um, maybe take it back a step again, and I'm, I'm guilty of doing this because I'm sort of always thinking about thinking about things while we're talking. But what do you think is driving us to feel this way? And I understand from a like a biological perspective that young equals beautiful. Therefore you know, potentially good mate and, and so on and so forth. And, and that's just my sort of basic understanding. But as humans, we can appreciate beauty in old things all, all the time. I mean, you're looking at beautiful old buildings and architecture. You're looking at, I'm, I'm a I'm a bonsai artist. So I'm looking for, to make trees look old and there's beauty and imperfection and, you know, a story um, of where that, that tree has been or what that building has been through and all the things that it's seen. Why is it that we have so much trouble seeing beauty um, in an aging human being when we can see it so clearly in, in nature and, 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 and sort of the things that we've built over, over the centuries? What an excellent question. Um, so I think that there's a few answers to this question. The first, I think, is we are so afraid of death, mm. right? As a culture, we, you know, Western cultures, we don't talk about death. And I think that right, aging bodies like equals death. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons. Um, another reason is we are obsessed with self-improvement and self-enhancement and um, trading up, right? Um, we upgrade our cars, we upgrade our houses, we upgrade our diamonds, um, we upgrade our faces. So I think that that's also some of the reasons we are obsessed with self-enhancement. <laughs> Maybe I could just sort of give some insight because, you know, I obviously see lots of patients and my typical patient is, you know, maybe someone similar to you, Dana, um, you know, they're not looking for a huge transformation. They just want to look better. They want to feel like themselves again. And so most people reach a tipping point. It could be 50s. It could be 40s. Rarely it's younger, but sometimes it is. And people look in the mirror and they just go, I don't feel like me, like me on the inside is, you know, Dana, but my face doesn't say that anymore. Your face is like mama. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, people aren't looking for looking younger per se. They just want to feel more like themselves. And so it's almost like, I don't think they're scared of death or maybe they are, I don't know, but they are definitely trying to recapture something. And I don't know. I don't want to use the word youth because no one comes to me saying, "I want to look young." They just want to look better for better. their age. Yeah. Right. Um, so most people's motivation is that yes, you definitely do get the other end of the spectrum where they want to look different. They want to look souped up, 
bigger boobs, uh, you know, a square jawline. And that's where, you know, you can argue, is that normal? Is it not normal? Whoever. But um, yeah, most people's motivation is inverted commas normal. I think it's understandable. So I think that we become really attached to these younger versions, these, like, these, you know, we become really attached to these, like our younger versions of ourself. Um, and once you start to look in the mirror and you see that go away and you wonder like, who am I? I'm turning into my mother, right? That um, has huge implications for our self-concept, right? And thinking about, you know, who we are as individuals and how we identify. The reason why neurotoxin is so fascinating and also dermal filler now um, is it's not about denying aging or stopping aging, right? It's really about like designing aging um it's really crafting the face to look like the best version of who you are at that particular moment yeah yeah i um remember sitting in a consult with a patient once with a doctor that was um about to do some injectable treatment and asking some of them questions around you know what the motivations were for getting treatment and why they were there today and so on and and, and she said um i don't want to be invisible anymore and 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 that to me was quite confronting to sort of hear her say that and then start to think deeper about what what that actually meant and what the implications were and and what she, and from my perspective what she was trying to say was that because she had reached an age now where you know maybe men weren't looking at her anymore maybe um you know wasn't seen as someone that was still viable in the workforce it was almost like society had made a decision that she was no longer worth paying attention to because she was past her use by date. And I'm sure this happens for men too. I'm just talking about my experience with in this situation. I happen to be a female. Um, I think that's quite sad um, mm-hmm. that people feel like that, that, you know, and maybe that's what it is. If I'm not attractive, then who am I? You know, if the opposite sex isn't looking at me anymore, am I, what's my worth to society? And if people don't want to employ me, then why? Like, so I, I that to me was a really powerful statement and I've thought about it often and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that sort of, on that sort of mindset. Yeah. Thank you for bringing up that very astute observation. Um, so I would say maybe some men feel this way, but in general, this is very much, you know, this is why I think Botox is such a, a really um, a, a compelling drug like to to see gender inequality right because it's like 94 percent of botox neurotoxin consumers are women okay um and and that is you know corresponds with the numbers of um cosmetic surgery as well it's slightly slightly less for cosmetic surgery overall but you know this is very much a, a gender problem aging women become invisible right women sense of self and their identity and their self-worth is so tied to their appearance um and then when all of a sudden and it's like incredibly frustrating and annoying and, and shitty um to have that when you're younger but then when that goes away you're like who am i um yeah, I hate these construction workers catcalling me, but when they stop doing it, you're like, well, who am I as a person if that I'm not this younger, cuter version of myself, right? So I, there's, that has a lot to do with it, yeah, yes. Um, it, I think that it's changing. I think that um, men's uh, 
faces are being judged in, in like harsher ways now with the advent of injectables. And we're seeing a rise in that wrinkles that were once distinguished are now um, make men look tired and, um, and worried, right. Which is not what you want in certain occupations. Right. Um, so I think it's changing, but it is very much, um, it is a, a feminized problem. What do you feel about um, that? I, I guess it's a, a biology question, really, but it, it's to do with what you do in your in your field. You, you know, your face is to some extent your passport to opportunities, and that's either sad or good. I don't know, but you know, like you said, if you're younger and attractive, you get attention, whether you like it or not. It it, it does something to to people who you experience life with, and then at some point you become invisible. So, is that not i guess an inevitability of aging you know we we go through menopause we get gray hair these are biological signs of i'm older and maybe less viable as a partner so it's it's a bigger question isn't it you mean a mate rather than a partner <laughs> a mate partner you know we're basically buying into our our own demise yeah. <laughs> yeah. um and so, yeah, yes, aging is inevitable and we're going to get wrinkles and we're going to get gray hair. And why do we fight? Why do we work so hard to, to fight it? It's, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is we've always done it. The Egyptians use makeup and, and wigs and, and we've always done it. It, it. I think it's a human um, desire. We don't think about it. We don't... We don't um, well, maybe we do now because we've got so many different tools, but we've always <laughs> wanted to look either more beautiful or younger, I, I think. But how we do that, I don't know. We've just got so many more tools now that yeah. maybe we're scrutinizing. So many more tools and they're so much more accessible. Yes. Yes. Like there's, you know, I'm, you know, you hear stories of queens just bathing in blood of virgins, right? We don't have to do that anymore. We can just go to the medical spa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, at, at this sort of um, beginning of, of the chat, um, and also it's covered quite comprehensively in, in your book, you're talking about um, the changing mindset um, of how these uh, products are advertised and, and marketed towards people and, and the way in which they're looking to increase market share. And initially, um, I think we'd all agree that these treatments, injectable treatments, were used to um, correct issues um, that were already existing um, and then we've seen that sort of change to, hey, you should get this done before you have problems um, as a preventative measure. So I was just wondering if you could, you could speak to that a little bit and whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing or it just is what it is. And I will just add to that. I think the American experience is very different to our experience here in Can Sydney. Can you tell me a little Australia. bit about that? Can you tell me um, yeah. well, I what mean, the experience in Sydney is like? Dave and I have joked a lot about this, but you know, the American marketing of forget injectables, every drug under the sun is quite unbelievable to, to us when we see it. You know, you could be watching the, the, the football and then mm -hmm. in the interval, you've got like antidepressants advertisements. It's mm -hmm. just a bit bizarre. So I think, you know, when, when injectables are also marketed either in literature or on TV, I don't know if you have TV ads, we don't have any of that. We yeah, even... so we do. We have TV ads. When I was writing the book, we did not have right. TV ads. And we can't um, even mention the word in our advertising in our clinics. We're not allowed to use even the word totally at all. So it's yeah. quite yeah. different, I think. But please answer David's question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. the, the marketing is, is very aggressive. 
it's very aggressive. Um, not just in, so when I was doing the research and writing for this book, it's so archaic. I was looking at print media. I mean, that the idea of that is just crazy now. I mean, when I tell my students that, they're like, you looked at magazines? Um, <laughs> so yeah, I looked at magazines. Um, and um, the advertising, even back then, was pretty aggressive. Uh, there were you know, huge page ads. Um, and then we, we also have direct consumer advertising on TV. And so we have, um, commercials as, as well. And now with the advent of social media, I know it's, you know, and you don't, here's the thing is we don't actually believe advertisements, you know, but we do believe people. Um, and so we believe Instagram influencers. We believe like when I was writing the book, the big thing was the real housewives and they were, um, oftentimes seen on TV going to their, you know, um, doctors and, and, um, getting injections. Um, and we also believe doctors, um, and the, the really, um, smart, um, thing that pharmaceutical companies do is doctors are quoted in the pages of the editorials of the magazine, right? And um, this is where the the notion of prevention really became um, paramount is, you know, I was seeing it in magazines like Glamour, uh, Marie Claire, you know, Harper's Bazaar, doctors being interviewed or or even if they weren't doctors, anybody who was involved in the aesthetic industry talking um, about preventative Botox, right? And I read things like your face is like a house, you know, the walls are going to fall, the paint is going to chip, you know, um, or the paint is going to chip, um, and the ceiling's going to crumble. And, you, you know, you want to make sure you like, get to work before that happens kind of thing. And so I saw this quite a bit and, um, people, whenever I told people I was writing a book on Botox, um, particularly people who are under 40, they were like, well, I have to get it now because it's preventative. So it's just like, everybody believes it. Um, and, um, it's preventative to the extent that if you keep getting it, it works. Right. Um, yeah, of course. Um, but you have to keep getting it. Um, and so the, the financial, um, the financial weight of that rate is quite large. Um, it's at least, you know, let's say like a thousand dollars a year, which is fine if you're spending, you know, if you have that kind of money. Right. Um, and so the thing is, is I started getting Botox when I was 35. Um, and the lines pretty much disappeared when I got them. Right. I think that telling women that in their early and, you know, late, late twenties, um, to start getting Botox is, um, I think it's unethical, um, because I don't actually think that, um, I think that you can wait till you're a little bit older, right. Till the lines do appear and, and they go away. I mean, the neurotoxins are amazing. The lines go away. Um, and, uh, if you start when you're in your late twenties, you're going to keep doing it. Nobody stops. I'm trying to marry the two things because I'm, I'm listening to you from a patient perspective and, mm -hmm. and your book perspective. Yeah, of course. And, and, you know, I think you agreed, yes, it will prevent if you carry on. And I don't think anyone is claiming that 
a one-off treatment will cure you for life. So what what is the discord, the, the financial implication or the messaging of, you know, the doctors providing the product? So it's both, right? Um, it's not just the financial implications, but also this, you know, I mean, the creating this lifetime consumer. Okay. Um, and so that, that's what it does. And, you know, one thing is, is once we start using neurotoxins, the overwhelming majority of people don't stop because it is truly, truly amazing what it can do. Right. Um, and so oftentimes then you move on to dermal filler, right. And, um, and then, you know, who knows what else, right. Um, because of the ways by which, um, you know, injectables truly, truly are, they have changed the ways that we are able um, to, to design, right. Our faces um, and to enhance our faces. And, and so, yeah, so yeah. As, a, as an injector, I know I'm biased here. I'm coming from yeah. my perspective, but isn't that the magic that people yeah. love them so much yeah, that they absolutely. will invest and find the money? But so telling somebody who's 27 to start doing Botox, I think is is problematic. That's. I mean, that's look, I, I think every injector should be treating someone on a bespoke basis. So I, I've seen... 20 year olds with the most severe frown lines and they came for that and nothing else obviously and i've seen 35 year olds with nothing on their face and i've turned them away so you know it depends on the provider right. doesn't it it's not it's not the drug that's the problem no 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 it's not the drug that's the problem i think that it's and it's not necessarily like the explicit marketing it's like the conversations about it yeah right that, that's really what I'm talking about. Yeah. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere, isn't it? I mean, you, you watch a movie and you see, wow, isn't Brad Pitt looking good? Or isn't Angelina Jolly looking amazing? Like that stuff just doesn't happen. Do you know no. what I mean? Like these people are not genetically gifted to that level that they just don't age. And well, I know the that there's certain things you can do. Sorry, go on, Jay. I was going to say, the funny thing is when you do see big actors and Brad Pitt's a great example, I'm sure he's had nothing because he's now looking his age. You know, he still looks like a, an attractive, charismatic 50 year old oh, oh that's 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 like smoker skin too <laughs> yeah but but yeah. <laughs> he has aged no doubt about it yeah. and from a facial aging perspective i can tell you all about it but the point is that actors often are not allowed to have it and you see it well i see it because i know what i'm looking for whereas right. the average person in the street who's had treatment you also know that they've had it if it's not good work yeah right right so, absolutely yeah, yeah. getting so, that balance so, is difficult. So, so I guess what I was saying as well is that it's like where it, it seems like it's everywhere in our culture. It's not just the pharmaceutical companies advertising. It's in social, as you said, it's social media. It's you know actors that obviously get it because there are actors that obviously do get it done and some that don't. But it seems to be everywhere in our society that's sort of encouraging us to, to look a certain way. And we've had so many discussions on here with um, various people, um, psychologists, and so on around the whole body dysmorphia issue. And it's, it's, it's such a slippery slope and it's hard because I, I love these treatments. I think they're great, but I also can see how it can become dangerous for certain people who are in a certain vulnerable uh, mental state or have got existing conditions or, you know, not. Yeah. So I don't even know if there's a question there. It's just, how do we sort of, how do we navigate our way through this in a way where it doesn't become completely out of control where, you know, which in some instances it is starting to go a bit that way. I don't have the answer to that question. <laughs> well, I, I think my, well, 
my insight into it is that you're absolutely right. I've seen patients and they come with a very understandable motivation. We do some treatments, they're happy, they want a bit more. And, you know, if it's um, (coughs) difficult and there's a reason to do it, you do it. But at some point, they sometimes come back asking for stuff and you're like, what what are we going to do? Like, where where do you want me to put this stuff? Like, you've got the cheek that you wanted, the lines are now controlled. And so I think patients understandably use it as a bit of a crutch for other stuff going on in their life. You know, they might be going through a crappy relationship or their work might be not so good. And sometimes our patients are trying to project an image or use not just injectables, but any beauty treatment to compensate for something that isn't so good in their life. And you have to have that awkward conversation sometimes and say, look, you are at a level where where you look great, you know, from an aesthetic opinion, but you're going to overstep the boundary and still not be happy, but we're also going to morph your face and make you look augmented, not beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, I have a, a friend so that I just went and saw and she she had started getting injectables done pretty early, like in her early 30s, maybe late 20s. Um, and she looked pretty flawless for, I would say, about 10 years. And then more recently, the work that she's been getting done has just been more and more obvious. Mm. And she had um, some injections in her lips. And I was kind of like you know, made a comment about it and, you know, and she was like, but look, it looks like the filter. Um, and so I think that, um, it looks like the filter, right. And I'm just like, wow, like we have this, this idea of what beautiful is supposed to look like that is like totally not attainable, um, in, in the world of Instagram filters and, um, social media filters. So I think that also has quite a lot to do with it in the sense that we're like augmenting our faces on social media. Um, and uh, this type that, that is not possible without getting some sort of work done. Yeah, I think that also has a lot to do with it as well. Oh, for sure. Every guest we've had on social media comes up in some way. And, you know, whether you're young or old, there's this subconscious or even more explicit pressure to look like something, whatever that is. Um, you know, it tends to be our younger patients who come in trying to follow a trend or, or, or look like a celebrity or something. And of course, you know, it's a bit ridiculous, but people don't understand that. You know, the the lay person thinks it's completely normal to request, you know, uh, you know, a selfie look. Uh, sorry, a, a filtered look, and right. you, know, you have to have that awkward conversation. That's that's virtual reality. That's not real life. So, um, what? And let me ask you, what then? Like, how do you negotiate that? How do you navigate that conversation? What kinds of things do you talk about, and what do you do? We literally, you know, you try and celebrate their unique features. So if they've got great eyes, you say, look, you've got some amazing things here already. Let's build on that and make, you know, David mentioned it before. I really celebrate people's unique, um, uh, what's the word? Characteristics. Um, Yeah, characteristics. If they've got a mole or there's a bit of asymmetry or they've got something about them that makes them them then we really should be focusing our treatments around that to make them unique. You know, the problem with selfies, that everyone kind of looks like a weird morphed version of the same thing, um, or, or they're just not real anatomy. Like if, they, if they're going to remove all of your pores on your skin, 
that's not normal. And, and no treatment can ever deliver that. So you, know, you just have to have a, a kind of a lighthearted, but sometimes blunt conversation, say that's just not real. If you're looking for that, let, let's just not, mm-hmm. not, not do something um, and just carry on using your phone, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's amazing that the, the, the huge disparity between good work and bad work and the way that different injectors approach treatment and, um, looking at some of the over 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 the top work that's been done you can see that there's been like a deliberate effort to almost to change the way that person looks rather than enhance what they already have it's when you start trying to play god to a certain extent or whatever your interpretation of god is um, when you're starting to change features dramatic dramatically or putting features on a on a on a structure that don't suit the rest of that person's face and that's when it starts to me look a little bit odd is when people are almost trying to change their identity and it's it's never going it's always going to draw your eye and and you sort of can just even if you're not medically trained or aesthetically sort of minded you can just your your body can just pick out that that's just not right there's something about the way your features are interacting with each other that just it's just it's not kosher do you know what i mean you can you can just tell yeah i think the problem is too is um quite a lot of people just get really addicted to seeing their face in a certain way. Like, right. Like we know when the neurotoxin starts to wear off and the wrinkles start coming back and, you know, um, all of a sudden people start to, um, you know, some of the people I spoke with for the book, like they would talk about like panicking and having to call their doctor immediately. And, um, <laughs> and then, right. Yeah. I mean, the one woman said like, you know, she was, she used the word I'm, I'm crack like about it. Right. Um, and so, um, and so it becomes, you become just more and more and more and used to seeing your face a certain way. Um, and then it just, you kind of get lost in that. Right. Um, you forget like what, a, I don't even want to say natural because there, there is no such thing as natural anymore. Right. But, um, I guess like what, what like a normal aging face is supposed to look like even an aging, beautiful face. Right. Um, I think people just get, they get to use the, the metaphor of like the, the drug, like they get really addicted. Um, and, um, the normal natural face becomes just exposed as totally flawed and it's not just good enough ever to be you, you know, you just have to be like you only better. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, just to be clear, they get addicted to the look, not, not the drug itself. No, but... no, no, no. You can't get addicted to the drug, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Um, no, but you get addicted to seeing yourself a certain way, right? And yeah. then you're like, oh, well, now I see a different wrinkle. So I have to get, you know, that. And so you just become really, you know, like there's this like acute mapping of the face that didn't yeah. happen before. Yeah. I mean, you you even see that sort of phenomenon on, on a new patient. You do some simple neurotoxin on them and they will go home with a laser focused, um, uh, you know, looking at themselves in the mirror every five minutes to, to look at the changes and try and understand what's happening to them. And they get hyper fixated sometimes when it's not absolutely perfect immediately. And then we also see that phenomenon, you know, when COVID hit and we all couldn't have our treatments, our patients went wild. We're, we're just coming out of our lockdown again. And again, they're going wild. They are desperate to get their treatments done. And of course, it's not just injectables, it's everything, their hair, yeah. the nails, their... You know, manicures, whatever. 
Um, so, you know, our society has these things that are, I don't know, they're consumable products now. They're not just medical services. And it's normal. It, it, it has been normalized. It's built into the fabric of what they do every three or four months. And mm -hmm. so when they don't have it, they feel very unhappy about it. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and that was like a complete transformation from when I started writing the book till completion, right? Like some of the, the early quotes in the magazines were like, neurotoxins are going to become just like getting your nails or hair done. Like in, in a way that it, not, not like the, not, I guess like the, the fact that it's so casual, but, but. It, it is as well, but also just that it becomes just like another thing you do that you schedule. Right. Um, and I remember reading that pretty early on and being like, I don't know about that. And now I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Like somehow it's become that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that you, um, sort of talk about in, in the book is the correlation between wrinkles and, um, and health and the perception that people with wrinkles are somehow unhealthy. And I, I guess I, I can kind of understand that because as people get older, they generally become less healthy. Is that is that the correlation and, and sort of what were your sort of take on or insights into that into that thinking? So we assume that um, health is written on our bodies, right? And so we assume that if we like if we're sick, we should look sick, right? Or if we're healthy, we should look healthy, right? And um, old age is viewed as unhealthy, right? Um, and so we assume that, um, this is why uh, wrinkles are a signal of old age, right? And, and old age is associated with being sick. But as one sociologist so um, aptly pointed out, um, her name is Toni Casalanti. She said, you know, wrinkles tell us nothing of our heart function, right? Um, and so we don't actually know people's health solely by looking at them we just assume we do yeah right? i yeah. think it sort of goes back to what I, what we were talking about before about you know we know that a baby's face is very voluminous with no wrinkles and a 90 year old person's is not voluminous it's very saggy and empty with wrinkles so it's just that sort of you know, David, you said before, you know, when someone's had a lot of work, even though you're not a trained injector, you just know. Yeah. And so we're kind of in tuned, it's ingrained in ourself to sort of make some sort of judgment on what someone is by looking at them. Yeah. That's just how humans work, I think. And so, you know, when we do neurotoxins for someone because they've got a wrinkle in their, I think you called them the 11s in your book, Dana, that's mm -hmm. because they look a bit angry. And whether right. they're angry or not, the perception is they're angry and unapproachable mm -hmm. or, and they're or they're tired or they're, you know, they're not sleeping well. Right. So yeah. they, you know, you we make these judgments. Someone's got a bag right. under their eye. Well, they right. might have not slept or they might have slept for 24 hours. Who or the hell knows? Mm -hmm. yeah. Or maybe they're sick. Right. It's the perception that is driving, you know, these interactions between each other. And, you know, why do you find someone on Tinder attractive and someone not? Well, you've made a judgment on their appearance, whether you're right or wrong, that's your judgment, right? So that's why I think these treatments are so ad addictive, if you want to call them addictive, because they're powerful. They, they are our passport to some sort of life in one way or the other, I think. Wait, attractive people are treated better they're paid well, right? They have, you know, 
better chances in, you know, sexual marketplaces and intimate marketplaces, especially. So, I mean, this is also, you know, I wrote the book pre Tinder. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And even like pre Instagram, I mean, Instagram was like kind of a thing when I was finishing the book, but yeah. It's it's just changed so dramatically. And I really, really, really want to write a second book. <laughs> I think I have to. So much has changed. Oh, it's moving so quickly. How did you go about selecting the people that you interviewed? Um, so what were you sort of looking for? What were your criteria and what were your sort of I don't know, your insights into in sort of different demographics and what was driving people and so on? So I was particularly interested in uh, relatively young women, Um, particularly interested in women between the ages of like 30 and 40, um, because that's how old I was. (laughs) And and also that was um, the the fastest growing market in in America for neurotoxins. So that's like who I was particularly interested in. And that was a very different experience. Cosmetic surgery was generally performed on older women right? Women over 45, um, in terms of thinking about like, you know, anti-aging cosmetic surgery, really. Right. And so neurotoxins were a bit different because it was a a different demographic. So I was really interested in looking at that demographic. Um, I used predominantly my own social networks. So, um, I did interview some friends and even some family early on. And then I posted stuff on social media platforms. And then I, when I interviewed providers, they um, sometimes would tell me, you know, um, uh, spread the word in, in ways that was like HIPAA approved. Um, and so um, I really, it was not a like statistically representative sample in that way. Um, and then I interviewed, you know, a, a handful, full of men, but it, it did, speaking of statistics, it did like match, you know, I had probably about 90 something percent women and um, probably about like five to seven percent men, which matches the, the numbers on, on Botox, uh, neurotoxins na- nationally. And geographically, were you in your own state or town or did you travel? No, no, no. It was all over, it was all over the United States. And a lot did live in like Miami, LA, New York, and then New Orleans, where I live. But I also had some people in like some smaller southern towns. Um, not everyone lived in like an urban metropolis. Yeah, um, Most- I mean, I don't want to get to American politics, but you've chosen some big demographic sort of areas where, you know, even I can sort of stereotypically guess what women might be like. I'm curious to know if you chose the center of America and South and, you know, Midwest, if it would skew the results in any way, maybe not. Who knows? So it would have, it would have ch- changed my results a little bit, right? Especially at that time, right? At this time in like the mid 2000 and like, you know, 2010, it, it was very different, right? Neurotoxins had a very different reputation. I think that if I were to do these interviews now in even like Montana, mm-hmm. um, would it be the same as if someone in Miami? No, but has the stigma decreased and changed? Absolutely. Yeah. What about for men? When where do you think the male market's going? You've mentioned that you know you interviewed ninety percent women. I, yeah. I think that most injectors around the world will probably um, attest to the fact that probably eighty to ninety percent, at least, of their patients are female and, and not men. So, what do you think is going to happen with the male market? And what do you think is holding them back from being as interested in these treatments as women? So I uh, recently wrote this paper on Botox and um, 
I looked at advertisements online this time, um, advertisements for uh, targeting men. Okay. And um, it, it was my findings were like incredibly humorous and phenomenal. <laughs> um, I mean, the advertisements were like, um, so they were for Botox. So I, they were, it was like Botox, um, burgers, and beer. You know, I mean, they like butched it up as much as they could. And it was like throwing, you know, beer and burgers and, and sports. It was like football advertisements. Um, they really had to butch it up so much. Um, so some of those advertisements were, you know, sort of focusing and on and targeting like that particular type of masculinity, right? Like this is like anything but feminine. Okay. Like making sure men knew. Um, and then some other advertisements were a little bit more um, targeting like upper class um, professional men. And it was, you know, like uh, telling men that they can't look worried or tired in the workplace. Um, so I think men are um, hesitant to uh, to do something that is so feminized, right? I mean, you walk into a nail salon and it's primarily women, right? Um, you know, my husband comes to me to get a pedicure and he's always like, hoping he doesn't see anybody knows um, and so you know I think that these types of body work are and, and beauty work are so feminized that it's you know so stigmatized for men for their heterosexuality for their masculinity to cross over into that um to cross over that you know boundary um I think it's changing um slowly but I do think it's changing yeah. I don't know necessarily if that's a good thing um but uh but I think that we're seeing more and more men um, becoming consumers. How would you feel if your husband got Botox and fillers? He's got it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to slightly change that question because really the question is, how would you feel if your husband looked after how he looks? It doesn't matter how he does it, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, he looks great, and so he, nobody's going to hear this, right? In in America, I hope <laughs> he is. So he um he has gotten it for TMJ before right. for um, and then it was like a few months ago. He just told me he said, "Do you want an early birthday present?" And I said, "Yeah." He's like, "Okay, I got those." I was <laughs> 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 waiting for you to notice, and you never did. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, got, yeah. I guess proof that he wasn't feminized. <laughs> he didn't no, notice anything. No, he's like not that type of man. Like <laughs> yeah. What about, <laughs> yeah. What about for you, Jake? I mean, how do you deal with the male client mm. and how do you approach your consultation process? And do you find that there's still that secretive, you know, I don't want anyone to know, it needs to be really subtle or yeah. The, 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 definitely not secretive. Um the males I see are they're gay and they're straight. Uh, they're all different age groups. Um, certainly, I'm still seeing a yeah similar percentage to what Dana said. Maybe about ten percent men, ninety percent women. It's not it's not less than that. Um, but they come with all sorts of motivations. They just you know want to look good, or some exactly like you said, Dana, and and they haven't been marketed. They just want to look competitive because they're now in their fifties and they are in high corporate positions and. You know, they just want to kind of look calmer or 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 just a bit more approachable if they've got you know deep angry glabella lines. Um, 
I don't think there's a particular sort of stigma anymore. Well, certainly yeah. not in, in Sydney where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty normal. And even the female patients that come now, you know, those days that David was saying where, where it was all sort of hush-hush and, and cash and, you know, not on the credit cards, the husband doesn't know, that's quite rare now. It does sometimes happen, yeah. but pretty rare. Because here in Australia, it's so available. You go to any town, even rural, you can go to a, a, a reputable clinic. You know, it's not kind of done in a sort of a dodgy sort of backstreet alley now. It's, you know, there are established clinics all over the country. Um, so, yeah, I, I think those days are, are going away, which is a good thing. Because then we can actually talk about it properly. It doesn't need to be done by you know, someone, you know, p- potentially unreputable. We're all trained to do what we're doing. We're doing it in the right way. We're using approved products. And it's just opening the conversation rather than having to be some sort of big secret. Donna, we're seeing um, anti-aging becoming this all-encompassing phrase that can mean Botox treatments. It can mean getting, you know, PRP injections potentially done. And now we're starting to see conversations um, cropping up around you know, aging being diagnosed as a disease um, that that's starting to become um, spoken about. And we're, we're starting to see um, things like gene therapy, stem cell therapy. So approaching the aging process or trying to counter the aging process on, on a cellular level. So wondering if you had sort of any, any thoughts on that at all. And, and, and if there's any difference between, I guess, treating it like almost like, I don't know, it's a different mindset, isn't it? Because you're sort of preventing it from happening or reversing it rather than tra- treating the symptoms, which is what we're doing now. Right. I I, I wish I knew more about this. So I, I, I can't Next really... Book. Next book, Donna. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, aging and beauty are both medicalized. And there's one thing to to try to change or like conceal the appearance of aging right? Like that's what neurotoxins do, right? There, and it's another, my son and uh, it's okay. daughter husband just got home. So I'm going to have to go in a minute, that's okay. um, but it's another to like, to actually use like, you know, hormone replacement therapy and stem cells and like, you know, but that they're like, one is about the appearance. One is like the actual, like physiological part of aging. Right. Um, which I think humans are fully capable of doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'll ask you one more question if you don't mind yeah. what, what do you think the future holds for you know intervention cosmetically whatever whatever the the tool because you know if there is this slight taboo and and strangeness about things like injectables um, from a sociological perspective where do we go when we start using stem cells or whatever <sighs> something else yeah, I don't. Um, I, I see it moving in that direction. Absolutely. I mean, I think it was um, such a profound and just quick shift in the ways that people have just like accepted and adapted and adopted, right? Injectables, right? I mean, it happened. I mean, it's just in 2000. I have these numbers up. So in because t- I was like prepared. In 2020, there were f- over 4 million botulism toxin type A procedures, right? Um in 2000, there were 780,000. That's it. I mean, that is like a massive increase um, in ways that has completely transformed the ways that we think and talk and manage aging, right? Yeah. 
that's just the last 20 years. And so, yeah, I absolutely think that humans are, um, we are moving in that direction. We just want to control, like this, with this pandemic has shown us we can't control anything. And, you know, these technologies give us some illusion of control. And I think we just, we really want to hold on to that. And look better while we do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll let you go. You know, your family's just arrived home and thank Thank you for being so generous with your time. I kicked him out for an hour. (laughs) Great. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, this is really fun. Yeah, really appreciated the chat. Jake, did you have something you wanted to say? I do. I want to say thank you as well. I really appreciate your insights. And don't forget to book in with your provider for your next treatment. (laughs) And I'm... I'm breastfeeding, so I can't oh, breastfeeding right okay. now. Well, when all that is finished, <laughs> then make sure you go and see him or her. <laughs> okay, I um, would love to come visit Australia. Yeah, we'll please do. do. We'd we'll 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 love to person. host you for dinner or something. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Dana. See you later. Good night. Take care. Thank you. Bye. bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests, and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 